Welcome to the reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Thursday, February 22nd, 2024. I'm your reader, Mary Francis, and you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. Taking a look at the front page of the TH today, Supervisors okay $5 million in capital projects. Other headlines, Dubuque officials parking meter revenue up, fewer tickets issued, and man accused of murder expected to be found competent for trial. And we'll start off with the top story, supervisors, okay $5 million in capital projects. And top story, supervisors okay $5 million in capital projects. This is from Benjamin Fisher of TH Media. The Dubuque County Board of Supervisors this week agreed to more than $5 million in capital improvements for the upcoming fiscal year, with funds from the Federal American Rescue Plan Act providing a boost in available dollars. The supervisors have $2.8 million remaining from the county's $19 million ARPA allocation after the city of Farley greatly reduced its funding request for a new library. The county also is budgeting for some revenue growth, even with a reduction in levying authority required by a 2023 state law. Those factors meant the supervisors could support most county departments' capital improvement requests for the fiscal year beginning July 1. The supervisors are expected to decide on remaining capital improvement requests and the budget for employee raises at their Monday, February 26 meeting. County Budget Director Stella Rundy explained at this week's meeting that $2.5 million in remaining ARPA funds needed to be allocated by the end of the calendar year to meet deadlines of the federal funding. The other $300,000 had been moved to the county's general fund in 2022, and that can be used for any needs. Supervisors Wayne Kenneker and Harley Potoff wanted to use the $2.5 million for the county's share of the new 911 Communications Center that's being developed with the City of Dubuque and Dubuque County 911 Service Board. Supervisor Ann McDonough argued that the board should be more thoughtful about spreading out the remaining ARPA funds among several high-dollar capital projects county departments have proposed. She preferred incurring debt strategically, then using the ARPA funds to soften the blow to county property tax revenue next fiscal year, stemming from the levy rate reductions. Quote, I think citizens will understand debt on some big public safety things we are being asked to absorb, which might better be done over time with debt, she said. I think we're not being strategic. Using all the ARPA funds for the 911 center is just the easy answer and not the long-term solution. Kenneker and Potoff said, they wanted to only turn to debt when absolutely necessary. County officials had been worried that measures in the state property tax reform would hurt county revenues at a time when costs and needs are rising. Rundy reiterated that because the county's taxable property value had increased by 5.945% this year, the state had reduced the county's maximum levy rates. That resulted in around $505,000 less in revenue than the county would have received based on the current fiscal year numbers. Even with that, though, the county would be expected to receive 
around $2.35 million more in revenue than in the current fiscal year based on the current levy rate. That revenue information led to a rare political exchange between supervisors. Quote, overall, the way I see it, we will be collecting $2.35 million more next year, Kenneker said, then referenced the reforms that were proposed by the Iowa legislature's Republican majority, but that received bipartisan support because of the law that we hear so much about that has limited us by $500,000, he said. McDonough maintained her criticism of the reform's impacts to local governments, but said the county was saved by its remaining ARPA funds, which received only Democratic support in Congress. Quote, in a really bad situation where the state has intervened in our ability to do home rule, we're starting to see the early results, McDonough said. As we see these numbers come together, we are in a position of strength. I'm very, very thankful for the ARPA funding. We need to know that we credit that to the current Biden administration. Politics aside, because the federal government has given us this gift, we can look at some of the projects we wouldn't be able to otherwise without relying wholly on debt, unquote. Beyond the 911 center, the supported capital improvement projects include several high dollar ones that supervisors have debated at length in recent months. The supervisors approved $1.5 million for a long planned replacement of the Dubuque County Sheriff's Department software and $329,000 for new handheld radios for the county's volunteer fire departments, with the latter expense spread out over the next three fiscal years. The county's Information Technology Department will also get several upgrades, $200,000 for a new phone system at the county courthouse, $150,000 to buy into a system of internet fiber conduit with the city of Dubuque, and $100,000 to move the county's current data center to the new 911 communications center. Rather than decide on individual projects for the Dubuque County Conservation Department, the supervisors, two to one, supported $460,000 as a lump sum, plus funding for a new employee. That plan, proposed by Kenneker and supported by Potoff, allows the Conservation Department and Dubuque County Conservation Board the leeway to spread that sum among projects as they see fit. Proposed products, projects include repaving roads at New Wine Park, replacing one of the last old bridges on the Heritage Trail, and a feasibility study for improvements to the Swiss Valley Nature Center parking lot. McDonough opposed the move, saying she thinks voters should know which specific projects supervisors support. The supervisors tabled decisions on a proposed replacement of the county courthouse's heating, ventilation, and air conditioning system, which officials say disrupts county business. Most of the other approved capital improvements were routine, including maintenance on existing infrastructure and replacing equipment. Our next story from the front page, parking meter revenue up, fewer tickets issued. City Transportation Department's Department rather says increased enforcement efforts have proved successful. A year after the city of Dubuque moved to increase the number of hours employees spend monitoring parking meters, City staffs say the change has been a positive one. 
In January of 2023, City Council members voted to eliminate three of the city's six part-time parking enforcement officer positions and replace them with two full-time positions. The city's parking enforcement officers are responsible for monitoring public parking meters, along with issuing tickets for vehicles parked in spaces with expired meters. The move was intended to help the city better enforce its metered parking spaces, which city staff said would both boost parking revenue and ensure downtown parking spaces did not remain occupied for prolonged periods. Ryan, oh, I'm just going to spell it K-N-U-C-K-E-Y. It's either Nucky or Kanucky, who is the city's director of transportation services, said on Wednesday that the city currently has two full-time officers and four part-time officers. While the initial plan called for three part-time officers to remain after two full-time positions were added, he said four have proved necessary to fill in the hours around the full-time officers' workdays, since part-time officers often work sporadic, limited hours. The changes have allowed us to have full coverage of monitoring parking meters throughout the city, with no gaps in our coverage, he said. He continued, at this point, we're adequately staffed. I'm very excited the City Council approved this change. According to city data, the city issued 32,857 parking tickets during the fiscal year 2018. With the onset of the pandemic, that figure dropped substantially, and the city recorded 17,780 parking tickets during fiscal year 2020. During fiscal years 2021 and 2022, the number of parking tickets issued was fairly consistent at 19,851 and 19,821, respectively. The two full-time employees were hired during March and May of 2023. During fiscal year 2023, which ended June 30 of 2023, the city issued 16,096 parking tickets, according to Kanucky. For the current fiscal year, which began July 1, 13,068 tickets have been issued so far. They said the city is on pace to match or potentially exceed the totals from the previous year. Although the city has seen a decrease in parking tickets year over year since hiring the two full-time employees, he noted that the city's parking meter revenue has ticked upward over the past year. What we're seeing is our parking meter revenue showing an increase because people are honestly paying the meter instead of hoping they don't get a ticket, he said. That was one of the big pushes when we applied to get the two full-time positions. We don't want to write more tickets. That's not my goal. My goal is to have people use the system honestly when they need to fill a meter or use a ramp. The move to two full-time parking enforcement officers was also designed to reduce staff turnover with city officials stating that full-time positions with benefits would reduce the turnover the department faces as part-time officers leave for full-time jobs elsewhere. One of the city's full-time officers said she feels the use of downtown parking options has rebounded since the pandemic, but there are still adequate spaces for all visitors and residents. Changes could be on the horizon for downtown parking options thanks to the development of a City Smart Parking and Mobility Management Plan. This week, City Council members unanimously approved distribution of a request for proposals 
for the installation of smart parking control systems at six parking ramps in the Port of Dubuque lot adjacent to the McGraw-Hill building, including modern entry gates for the ramps and an automated system that will provide various payment options and track statistics for city use. Knookie said any impact these changes might have on enforcement will depend on which vendor the city selects to implement the plan. He added that there has also been discussion around potential changes to metered on-street parking as part of the smart parking plan. The city officials are concentrating on the ramps first. Quote, that technology in the ramps is no longer supported by some of the vendors that we have. And while our meters may not be the best in the world, they are still functioning, he said. We're going to do the parking ramps first, and once they're established and moving forward, we'll start on the on-street parking. Andy Shrupp, manager at Outside the Lines Art Gallery in downtown Dubuque, said she, quote, definitely has seen an increase in the enforcement of parking meter violations near her 1101 Main Street business over the past year. Quote, we've got these big front windows, so I watch the parking enforcement officers go by, she said. I've already watched them give out a couple tickets today. Ben Graham, owner of Graham's Style Store at 890 Main Street, said there are times when his customers have difficulty finding a parking spot. However, he thinks that's likely not the result of a lack of enforcement, but rather downtown workers parking on the street rather than using parking ramps. Quote, the noon hour seems to be especially busy. If people are doing their banking or going over to Yen Cheng restaurant or walking down to the Adobos Mexican Grill, he said. The next story from the front page, man accused of murder expected to be found competent for trial. And then it shows a photo of a TV monitor, actually. Um, and it shows a, a man in an orange uh, T-shirt. It says Tyler Daisy listens during court proceedings to discuss findings of his competency evaluation at the Dubuque County Courthouse on Wednesday. Lawyers for a Dubuque man accused of murdering his mother told a judge on Wednesday that they expect he will be found competent to stand trial. A competency evaluation recently was performed on Tyler J. Daisy, that's D-A-Z-E-Y, age 28, at the request of his defense team. Daisy is charged in Iowa District Court of Dubuque County with first-degree murder and animal abuse in connection with the death of his mother, 46-year-old Jennifer Daisy. At a hearing Wednesday morning, defense attorney Joey Hoover told Iowa District Court Judge Thomas Bitter that an evaluation had been completed and that he expects the independent evaluator to find Daisy competent to stand trial. Quote, we had an expert evaluate Mr. Daisy and we believe he will found, be found competent, Hoover said. We don't have that final report yet, but I do believe that it can be done within a week, unquote. Bitter set a follow-up hearing for Thursday, February 29th to confirm the report's findings. Daisy's jury trial is scheduled to begin April 16th. The case stems from a January 18 incident in which the Dubuque police responded to Daisy's Avoca Street address after receiving a report of a deceased woman. Court documents state that upon arrival, police located and identified Tyler Daisy's mother, Jennifer, in her bedroom 
with numerous and significant lacerations to her face, neck, and head. Some of the fingers had also been severed from her hand, authorities said. Police applied for and executed a search warrant on the home and located a tactical tomahawk in a bathroom, documents state. The family dog was also found deceased in the living room with a significant head injury. Tyler Daisy was located in his bedroom shortly after police arrived and during a subsequent interview told officers that he owned a hatchet. He also claimed his mother had been practicing witchcraft, documents state. Daisy's attorneys previously filed documents stating that they intend to pursue a defense of insanity and diminished capacity in the case. They cited Daisy's long history of mental health related issues. Daisy recently filed a handwritten motion, however, asking for a new legal counsel and expressing disinterest in utilizing such a defense. Quote, I do not intend on using the affirmative defense of insanity and counsel has proven inadequate, unquote, his motion reads. Wednesday morning, Bitter told Daisy, who appeared by video from the Dubuque County Jail, that he would rule on that motion next week when the findings of the competency evaluation were finalized. Bitter also confirmed for Daisy that the competency evaluation would not prevent him from having a speedy trial. Per Iowa Code, defendants have a right to a trial within 90 days of formal trial information being filed unless they waive that right. Daisy's trial information was filed January 29, and he has repeatedly asserted his right to a speedy trial since then. First-degree murder is a Class A felony in Iowa and carries a mandatory life sentence in prison if an inv individual is found guilty. And turning the page to the Dubuque and Tri-State page, Dubuque officials disappointed about shutdown of River Cruise Line. Dubuque officials said the shutdown of a river cruise line with annual stops in Dubuque is worrisome, but that they are confident other cruise lines will continue to boost tourism. American Queen Voyages announced on Tuesday that it was ceasing operations and canceling all planned cruises. It was one of several cruise lines that make regular stops in Dubuque. The company did not immediately respond to calls or an email seeking comment. Its website states that, quote, demand for overnight cruises has not recovered following the pandemic and AQV has become financially unsustainable, unquote and it directs customers to apply for refunds. According to the company's website, two American Queen Voyages vessels were slated for a total of 10 stops in Dubuque this summer. The 417 guest capacity American Queen was set to dock in Dubuque six times, while the 245 person capacity American Countess was planned to make four stops. The cruise line made 12 stops in Dubuque in 2023. Keith Rahe, or Ray, is R-A-H-E, president and CEO of Travel Dubuque, said the news of the cruise line shutting down is disappointing, as Dubuque has seen tourism via river cruises increase in recent years. Quote, it's very concerning. You never want to see something like this happen, he said. We've done a lot of business with American Queen Voyages through the years. He said the cruises bring a significant amount of business to hotels, restaurants, and various attractions in Dubuque. Travel Dubuque facilitates tours 
not only in Dubuque, but also in Dyersville and Galena, Illinois, at other area attractions. Quote, it brings a lot of people through the front doors of these communities, but it also brings a significant amount of exposure when these guests are coming in from not only around the U.S., but from all over the world, he said. Danielle Jacobs, executive director of Dubuque Main Street, said that while it is disappointing to see the cruise line go and that some businesses may feel a slight pinch, she isn't too worried. Quote, I'm personally very confident in what downtown Dubuque has to offer, she said. I think that we'll be able to get through it just fine. Nate Breitsbrecker, director of sales and guest services for the National Mississippi River Museum and Aquarium, said the museum typically sees many passengers from the American Queen Voyage cruises and that he's sad to see the cruise line close. Quote, it's obviously saddened because we won't be seeing them in our port this year or maybe ever again, he said. He also said that while the closure is concerning, the museum sees customers from many of the other cruise lines that stop in Dubuque. He hoped American Queen customers would rebook with the other river cruise lines and still visit the museum and other area businesses and attractions. And in the news in brief, social worker sentenced for sexual relations with care facility resident. A Dubuque woman has been sentenced to two years of probation for having a sexual relationship with a resident of a care facility where she worked. Lynn C. Carter, age 26, and it shows her mugshot here, recently received the sentence from Iowa District Associate Judge Mark T. Hostager, H-O-S-T-A-G-E-R, Hostager, in Iowa District Court of Dubuque County after pleading guilty to a charge of sexual exploitation by a counselor or a therapist. As part of her sentence, Carter must also pay a $1,000 fine and register as a sex offender. Court documents state Carter engaged in a sexual relationship with a resident of Hillcrest Family Services located at 13034 Siple Road while Carter was employed there as a social worker. The relationship began in late 2021, documents state. They also state that Carter admitted to having sexual conduct with the resident in her office while Carter was on duty. The resident also confirmed the relationship to police. The next brief, Dubuque Humane Society plans walk-in low-cost pet microchip clinic. An upcoming clinic will provide pet owners with a low-cost opportunity to microchip their animals. The clinic will be held from 11 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. March 1st at the Dubuque Regional Humane Society on Chavanel Road, according to a press release. The release states that animals with a microchip are reunited with their families at a much higher rate than pets without a microchip. The regular walk-in price of a microchip is $40. The price during this clinic will be $25. No appointments are needed, but to participate, dogs must be on a leash and cats must be in carriers. And you can learn more about this online at dbqhumane.org. And then the police blotter. Um, first bullet, Jessica J. Small, age 31, of 2800 Kramer Park Drive, arrested 10.51 p.m. Tuesday in the 300 block of East 10th Street on a warrant charging third-degree harassment. Our next one, 
Batavia R. Cleveland, age 31, of Platteville, Wisconsin, arrested at 8.24 p.m. Tuesday in the 900 block of Elm Street on a warrant charging third-degree harassment and three counts of making a false report to a public entity. Our next one, Stephanie L. Hall, age 27, of 431 West 16th, was arrested at 4.10 p.m. Tuesday at the Dubuque Law Enforcement Center on a warrant charging two counts of assault with injury. Our next one, Cody G. Urolem, that's Y-A-R-O-L-E-M, age 38 of Piasta, was arrested 2.30 p.m. Tuesday at the Dubuque Law Enforcement Center on warrants charging domestic assault with strangulation, domestic assault with injury, obstruction of emergency communication, and three counts of probation violation. Our next one, Austin M. Miller, age 19, 3066 Central Avenue, was arrested at 1.44 p.m. Tuesday in the area of East 20th and Central on charges of third-degree burglary, possession of marijuana, possession of psilocybin, and warrants charging fourth-degree criminal mischief, and four counts of third-degree burglary motor vehicle. Our next is Garrett B. Brooks, age 24, of Thornton, Colorado, arrested 12.10 a.m. Sunday in the 1100 block of Dodge Street on charges of interference with official acts, public intox, two counts of assault on persons in certain occupations. Court documents state that Brooks twice assaulted a Dubuque police department officer. Next is hy at 2395 Northwest Arterial. They reported the theft of merchandise worth $623 at 9.28 a.m. Monday at that store. In our final from the police blotter, a burglary resulting in the theft of $3,500 was reported at 8.58 a.m. Saturday in the 900 block of Cleveland Avenue. And turning to the Tri-State page, Dyersville City Council approves third ARPA project. City will reallocate $250,000 to update Candy Cane Park and Westside Park lighting. Dyersville City Council members voted unanimously to approve a third project for the city's allocation of Federal American Rescue Plan Act funds at their meeting this week after tabling the resolution during the previous meeting. The council approved reallocating $250,000 previously committed toward, quote, constructing a restroom and concession stand at Commercial Club Park Little League ball fields, unquote, pivoting to update Candy Cane Park and Westside Park lighting. In a memo to council members, City Administrator Mick Michael said the funds would not be able to be expended in time to meet the funding's timeline for the Commercial Club Park project and suggested the shift to another timely project. The new project will see lights replaced at the main ball field at Candy Cane and the big field at Westside Park, with the plan being to install, an, install new equipment at Candy Cane and new poles with used lights at Westside Park to fix poles damaged in a storm. Quote, we found out that the poles are not safe, Michael said, of fixtures at Westside Park on February 5th. According to project quotes included in the agenda packet, the candy cane lighting upgrade would cost $176,904. 36,000 of that 
going toward installation costs per figures from January. A quote from last year put the cost for the new Westside Park fixtures at $76,500. The quote for Westside Park did not include installation. Quote, anything over that $250,000 would be taken out of the Parks and Rec budget to make sure that the project is completed on time, Michael said, as the resolution was discussed this week. The move was tabled at the end of the previous meeting on February 5th, as Councilmember Tom Westhoff asked whether a less expensive option was out there, including the possibility of halo lighting that the vendors said they did not sell anymore. The resolution passed without any opposition this week, as the quotes for the work were included in the agenda packet for the second meeting. Quote, I appreciate the extra information this time. I think it does help us as far as making a decision, Westhoff said. The project is the third project to be funded through the city's ARPA funds. Last year, up to $160,000 for upgrades to the American Legion Post 137 building to bring it into compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act was approved. In 2022, council members approved a $100,000 budget or funding rather, request in order to help cover the costs of moving the If You Build It exhibit to a new location. At the February 5 meeting, Michael said approving the funds would leave the council with approximately $150,000 in ARPA funds to allocate. And then there's a, a large vertical photo um, showing a cross and it's um, just very distinct against a bright deep blue sky and the caption reads the moon shines above the cross on saint john's evangelical lutheran church in dubuque last week and it shows the cross shining in the sun and then the moon is kind of um, a daytime moon is kind of faded in the background our next story bill removing gender balance requirement for iowa boards and commissions clears the senate this is from the Iowa Capitol Dispatch. Legislation removing Iowa's gender balance requirement for state boards and commissions advanced through the Iowa Senate on a 32-15 vote on Tuesday. Republican female lawmakers, Senators Annette Sweeney, Chris Cornoyer, Cornoyer Carrie Kolker, and Don Driscoll spoke in support of Senate File 2096 during floor debate. If the bill becomes law, the state would no longer require that state panels include an equal number of men and women. While some Democrats argued that the measure is necessary to combat gender discrimination and ensure women have equal access to government and leadership roles, Cornoyer said she found it sad that some lawmakers believed that repealing the requirement would lead to a reduction in women serving or being picked for those government bodies. Cornoyer, a Republican of LeClaire, said that the rule was insulting, recounting stories she has heard of women being asked to serve on certain boards solely because of their gender. She said boards and commissions should be comprised of the most qualified people of the communities they represent, which will include qualified and able women. Quote, did I have to work harder to prove myself? Yes, she said. Did I have hurdles to overcome? Yes, but all of those challenges made me better and stronger and more prepared for opportunities and challenges that I faced throughout my lifetime, just like many other women. 
Women who have worked hard to earn their success should not have that success diminished by those that depend on a system that allows them to fall upward, unquote. Senator Nate Bolton, a Democrat of Des Moines, said the requirement is still necessary. He brought up a U.S. District Court ruling, which has been appealed, that found that Iowa's gender balance requirement for the Judicial Nominating Commission was unconstitutional under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. He said looking at the composition of judicial nominating commissions in Iowa showed the need for a mandate. Before the requirement was first established in 1987, no woman had been elected to serve on the state commission. Nationwide, studies have found that men still comprise the majority of state judicial nominating commissions, Bolton said. Quote, this is a current situation where we look around the country and absent a gender balance requirement, it's imbalanced, he said. During a subcommittee meeting on the legislation earlier in February, Karen Kedrowski, director of the Carrie Chapman Cat Center for Women, spoke in favor of the requirement and said women still do not have equal representation on boards and commissions. Since the gender balance requirement was extended to cities and counties in 2012, the percentage of Iowa municipalities with gender-balanced boards rose from 13 to 61 percent, and it rose 12 percent to 62 percent for counties, according to the center's data. Boards and commissions are exempt from the requirement if they are unable to find a qualified candidate to meet the gender balance rule after a three-month search under the current law. Senator Herman Kornbach, a Democrat of Ames, joined Republicans in supporting the measure. He said women with higher rates of graduation and secondary education will be more likely to serve as qualified applicants on panels in the state, and the gender balance requirements would be a ceiling for their participation. Quote, I think we should do away with that ceiling, he said. I think we should let both men and women compete on the basis of their qualifications and their achievements and their willingness to work hard. I have no doubt that if we move in that direction, if we let women move forward as far as their talents and energy will take them, the 50% is going to be far exceeded in the not-too-distant future." Unquote. Senator Janice Weiner, Democrat, Iowa City, pushed back on claims that the requirement was no longer necessary or that women were being chosen as tokens instead of as qualified applicants. She also said that while significant strides have been made in women's inclusion in government and leadership roles, that does not mean there's no need for laws ensuring women's representation. And we're a little past the halfway point in today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Thursday, February 22nd, 2024. You are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. You can listen to this and many other of our local programs as podcasts, and you can check that out on our website, iowaradioreading.org. And now we have some news in brief. Volunteers sought for Platteville City Swap event this spring. Volunteers are needed for Platteville's upcoming City Swap event. This event, this spring, provides Platteville residents an opportunity to exchange gently used items. It'll be held May 18th at Faherty Inc. at 1120 Broadway Street. Items may be dropped off at the site from 8 a.m. to noon. 
Volunteers will help sort through loads of items to determine whether they can be swapped, recycled, or taken to the landfill. Participants can pick up the unwanted items that others have donated from 9 to 1 a.m. or p.m. rather. Items remaining at the end of the day will be donated to local thrift stores or disposed of properly. A special fee will be required to recycle appliances, electronics, tires, and lithium ion and lead acid batteries. If you're interested in volunteering, you are uh, asked to email Platteville Public Works Director Howard Crowfoot, and his email is Crowfoot H, that's C R O F O O T H, at Platteville.org. Another brief Manchester Hospital limits visits by youth due to illness levels. A local hospital is prohibiting most visits by children under the age of 14 due to increased respiratory illness and respiratory-related hospitalizations in the community of Manchester. Regional Medical Center issued the visitation restriction this week, according to an online announcement. The only exception is in the hospital's obstetrics department, where immediate siblings will be allowed to visit their new siblings as long as they are feeling well. And now we'll turn to obituaries. Gerald A. Weilu, that's W-E-L-U, age 83, of Claremont, Florida, passed away peacefully Friday, February 16. Um, his wife of 63 years, Mary Kay, was by his side as always. Um, services. Services are not set. They're being handled by Becker Funeral Home of Claremont, Florida. Eileen E. Dingbaum, age 90, of Dyersville, passed away Tuesday, February 20, at Mercy Hospital in Dubuque. Visitation, Friday, February 23, 2.30 to 7.30 p.m. at the Kramer Funeral Home in Dyersville. Visitation will continue at the Kramer Funeral Home from 9 to 10 a.m. Uh, prior to funeral mass. That mass will take place 10.30 a.m., Saturday, February 24, at the St. Francis Xavier Basilica, with burial in the Memorial Garden Cemetery in Dubuque. Mildred G. Recker, age 94, of Dubuque, passed away peacefully Friday, February 16, at the Finley Hospital in Dubuque. Visitation, Saturday, February 24, at 9.30 to 10.45 a.m., at the Resurrection Catholic Church in Dubuque. Funeral services will take place at 11 a.m. with a private family burial to follow at the Holy Cross Cemetery in Holy Cross, Iowa. Mark A. Ring, age 64, of Dubuque, died of multiple myeloma Tuesday, February 20, at his home with his wife and kids by his side. Visitation, Friday, February 23rd, 3 to 7 p.m., at the Hoffman Schneider and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory. James J. Milligan, age 60, of Dubuque, passed away February 20. Friends and family may visit Friday, February 23rd, 4 to 7 p.m. at the uh, Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory. Funeral service will be 7 p.m. Friday at the Funeral Home with Deacon Bill Hickson officiating. Anna M. 
Stelpflug, that's S-T-E-L-P-F-L-U-G, age 86, of Dickeyville, died Tuesday, February 20. Visitation, Monday, February 26th, 9 to 11.30 a.m. at the Casey McNett Funeral Home and Cremation Services in Cuba City. It'll be followed by a massive Christian burial at noon at the Holy Ghost Catholic Church in Dickeyville. Burial will take place in the church cemetery. Darlene L. Kathman, um, age 85 of Lancaster, passed away Wednesday, February 21. Visitation will be Saturday, February 24, 9 to 11 a.m. at the Martin Schwartz Funeral Homes and Crematory in Lancaster, where services will follow and burial will take place at Hillside Cemetery in Lancaster. Uh, Constance J. Funky, F-U-N-K-E, age 81 of Manchester, uh, passed away Tuesday, February 20. Visitation Sunday, February 25th at the Leonard Miller or Leonard Muller Funeral Home in Manchester. That will take place from 2 to 6 p.m. Uh, massive Christian burial will follow at 2 p.m. Inurnment will take place at the Calvary Cemetery in Ryan. Mary Sue McAllister, age 66, of Bankston, died Tuesday, February 20th. Visitation will be held Sunday, February 25, 2 to 8 p.m. at the Rife Funeral Home in Farley. A massive Christian burial will be Monday, February 26th, 10 a.m. at the St. Clement's Catholic Church in Bankston, followed by a burial in the church cemetery. Henry Hank Goldstein, age 87, of Dubuque, died Sunday, February 18th. Arrangements are pending. And James J. Clark, uh, age 68, of Wyoming, Iowa, formerly of Dubuque and Maquoketa, died Sunday, February 18th. Visitation, Saturday, February 24, 9 to 11 a.m., at the Carson Celebration of Life Center in Maquoketa. Services and cremation will follow. And then our births today, um, on Monday, February 19th, Samuel Wemmer and Caden Peel of Dubuque welcomed a boy. Ryan and Kelly Doles of Cuba City, Wisconsin welcomed a boy. James and Nicole Suarez of Dubuque uh, welcomed a boy on February 19th. February 20th, Jacob and Elizabeth Clark of Dubuque welcomed a boy. Lots of boys. And on Wednesday, February 21st, Joseph and Taylor Edler of Galena, Illinois welcomed a baby boy at Mercy One. And now we'll turn to opinions, starting with letters to the editor. The first one comes from Julianne Jarrett uh, from Pennsylvania Avenue in Dubuque. And Julianne writes, This letter pertains to a group of city officials performing a service few city officials would experience directly, a service dedicated to the elderly and the infirm. I came to this city in a wood on the Mississippi with its abundance of hills, Victorian houses and trees as a stranger to spend my waning years. One of the most important and disheartening aspects of these waning years is immobility and dependence on others particularly on a civic gift like the Jules minibus service. Years of experience have emboldened me 
to consider myself qualified to sing the praises of a team of dedicated individuals whose needs seem neglected or disregarded by various regulatory and corporate entities. This statement requires some specifics. The mentioned powers are not dependent on transportation for the underprivileged, and they're unlikely to have to perform perilous choreography on one's driveway in precarious winter conditions. Many bus drivers do it all the time. Blaming some anonymous snowplow instead of the construction and regulation is akin to blaming the child for inadequate winter clothing instead of blaming the parent. Returning to singing praises, colon, their skills include reliability, flexibility, computer programming mastery, driving a cumbersome vehicle, hard physical labor, psychological insight, patience, kindness, and just to mention a few. And that's from Julianne Jarrett from uh, Pennsylvania Avenue in Dubuque. In the political cartoon today, it shows um, a man and a woman up to their chests in snow, and they're both looking up, and the man has a thought bubble, and it says, the good news is that winter is almost over. And the woman who's looking up says, the bad news is that it's not. Uh, on our, our other view today, this is from David Overby of Dubuque, and it's titled, Understand History Behind Crisis at Border. People are coming across the southern U.S. borders. borders. This we know. Do we know why? Start with the Spanish colonization of Central America. The Spanish were governed by an absolute monarch, backed by an absolute religion, absolutist religion, rather. They didn't have the background culture to rule, except by decree from on high. Compare this to the colonization of North America by Northern Europeans, who came with a nation's sense of self-government. England with a king, yes, but the awakening development of Republican democracy. You know, like the Magna Carta, Parliament, yada yada. The North Americans also were colonized by a goodly variety of religious groups, from zealous to who cares. No one denomination dominated. When the North Americans and then the French threw off the trappings of monarchy, they were ready to govern themselves by the late 1700s. Religious groups got along just to get along. So when the Central American colonies finally threw off the Spanish yoke in the early 1820s, they did not have the means or attitude to get over the old authoritarian socio-religious background and little tin horn dictators took over the various countries. They tried to replicate the United States of America model, and there was actually a Central States of America Union, which fell apart by 1838. They continued their petty squabbles for decades, with unwanted interruptions from the North, like when President Teddy Roosevelt plucked the banana-shaped isthmus of Panama from Colombia in 1903 so he could finish the failed French Panama Canal project. By the 1930s, United Fruit, with the intercession of the U.S. Marines from time to time, converted the rest of Central America to a submissive group of banana republics. This banana monoculture stunted the development of other crops, keeping the masses in virtual servitude to the one master of the North. The process goes on ad nauseum, year after year. Does one recall the Iran-Contra, well, Oliver North debacle? 
The U.S., with apparently good intentions, trained Central American soldiers at the School of the Americas in Fort Benning, Georgia, to go south to battle rebellious citizens. But those soldiers, who also apparently with good intentions, curiously became death squads, killing and pillaging for their own gain. Bananas made money for the plantation owners, but drugs made money for everyone else. Drugs which North Americans gleefully buy, not knowing the harm it causes the communities from whence they come. Only a few years ago, the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, was touted as opening up trade in the Western Hemisphere, affecting Central America in the process. It conveniently allowed a highly subsidized U.S. corn to be dumped south of the border, resulting in hundreds of Mexican farmers being unable to compete, and it tossed them to the mercy of an already shaky economy. The World Trade Organization ruled this dumping was illegal, and no one cared. U.S. companies, like one unnamed in Dubuque County, sent their business to Mexico, but then, in their frenzied quest of the cheapest labor, moved their production to China, again leaving Mexicans without a job. Today, many a U.S. slaughterhouse, roofing company, and dairy farmer feigns ignorance and pretend to know nothing about the immigration status of their employees, and they hire them anyway. Sure, it's ignorance, but with an ironic twist. So, people are coming across the border. There are reasons. And this was from David Overby, who is a newspaper, magazine, and television editor for more than 30 years, and continues a study of current events and historical context. He's an ISU English graduate, an infantry combat veteran in Vietnam, and served in the Iowa National Guard, where he was the editor of the Iowa Guard newspaper entitled The Militia Men. Our next opinion comes from Arthur Sire, that's C-Y-R, it's an other view, and Arthur writes, On February 14th, major national elections took place in Indonesia. The results, especially in historic context, are a victory for democracy. An enormous nation with an autocratic history has successfully held a peaceful election. Incumbent President Joko Jokowi Widodo is constitutionally barred from seeking a third term. According to quick counts from selected polling stations, the winner of the presidential contest is Prabowo Subianto, who is a retired army general and current defense minister. He received nearly 60% of the votes. Official results might not be known for up to a month, but the quick count system has proven a reliable indicator over time. Subianto is a controversial figure. He's been accused of serious human rights violations in the 90s and for a time was banned from the United States. However, he's never been formally charged and he's vehemently denied all such accusations. Indonesia is the world's third largest democracy and the largest nation with a Muslim majority. The election was the largest one-day free election in the world, over 200 million participants. Indonesian citizens, 17 years of age and older, are eligible to participate, and turnout was high. Geography, as well as politics, are complicated in this nation. Over 17,000 islands comprise national territory, including the large islands of Sumatra, Java, uh, 
Sulawesi and parts of Borneo and New Guinea. Uh, in 2018, a Gallup poll found that an unprecedented 75% of Indonesians believed that elections are honest. This was the highest percentage ever in a long-term upward trend in public confidence, followed by a troubled national history. Gruesome earlier events provide graphic important context. May 2018, the Islamic State conducted bloody terrorist attacks in Surabaya, that's Indonesia's second largest city. Terrorism is persistent, though not frequent in Indonesia. In a 2016 attack, four people died. In 2002, the worst attack killed 202 people on Bali, including many foreign tourists. Trade routes and commodities provide Indonesia with great strategic significance. Washington has the opportunity to highlight Indonesia and neighboring nations as success stories of expanding political stability, modernization, and rule of law. During the height of the Cold War, Indonesia enjoyed status as a pivotal power among third world nations. During the 1960s, cooperation between Indonesia and the Soviet Union expanded exponentially. This development, vital in the massive U.S. military intervention in Vietnam in 1965, is rarely mentioned today. British forces with Australian and New Zealand allies defeated Indonesian attacks on Malaysia. Earlier, Britain defeated an aggressive, virulent communist insurgency in Malaya, which today is part of Malaysia. Britain's military avoided massive firepower, in contrast to the U.S. and Vietnam, especially from 1965. To be sure, the British military employed airstrikes and artillery, but relatively selectively. Officials regarded heavy bombing as counterproductive. Given American preferences for firepower and technology, we should keep this fundamental lesson always in mind. And Arthur I. Sire is author of After the Cold War. And that's all the time we have for today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Thursday, February 22nd, 2024, here on IRIS. I'm your reader, Mary Francis. Have a great day.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Sometimes we have too much electricity, but more often, grid operators are carefully managing its production to be sure that we have enough. So, a lot of work has gone into trying to store excess electricity to use later when we need it. The obvious solution, giant batteries, is still too expensive for most applications and has environmental implications. This has led scientists to look for other ways. One method uses surplus power to compress air and pump it into old salt mines. The salt tends to seal cracks in the walls, making the mines airtight. When needed, the compressed air can be released to turn a turbine, or it can be used as the intake air for a natural gas power plant, making the plant more productive. Another way to store excess energy is to pump water uphill into existing reservoirs and then release it through hydroelectric dams when power is needed. This method was pioneered 100 years ago in Italy and Switzerland and is used today around the world and in many U.S. states, like Michigan. On the Chilean coast, they're even experimenting with using solar energy to pump seawater up a cliff where it could flow down to make power at night. These solutions don't make economic sense unless the electricity is very cheap and the reservoir was already built for another purpose. But when those two things are present, pumping air and water to store energy plays a valuable role in balancing the grid to meet our ever-changing power demands. For Earth Date, I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.